This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your host, Peter Korchnak. Today's bonus episode of Remembering Yugoslavia was a Patreon exclusive. A year ago, I released it to my and the podcast supporters on that platform as a perk for their generous support. It was the first such exclusive on Remembering Yugoslavia's Patreon, and I've since released another. I won't be releasing that one to the public. Patreon supporters have also enjoyed three extended episodes over the past year, as well as early access to all episodes. If you want to hear these exclusive or extended episodes and enjoy early access to all episodes of Remembering Yugoslavia, go to rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate and choose from one of the options there. You can become a monthly Patreon sustainer or contribute one time. Yes, one-time contributions also get some perks. To put another way, as the song goes, all I want for Christmas is you and your support for Remembering Yugoslavia. Or, to bring it closer to home, Hoću majko hoću, podrške da doču. Visit rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate. You don't even have to pause this episode. And I promise I won't sing again. Aide. You may recall today's speaker from episode 13, Croatia's political tragedy, about historical revisionism in that country. Ivo Goldstein is a professor of history at the University of Zagreb and the author of some 30 books and textbooks on various aspects of Croatia's history. When I visited with him last year, he greeted me with a copy of his article published in 2008 in the journal Sudest Europeo titled Was Yugoslavia Good or Bad for Its Peoples? I thought the question was just as good as any to start my interview with him. You won't believe what happened next. By way of an answer, Professor Goldstein gave me a mini-lecture on Yugoslavia's history. This is what he said. Okay, I've edited it for length and clarity. It's a very complex question, and you cannot give a simple, a simple answer or simple answers. The problem is that uh, some people think that Yugoslavia was very good during its uh, history of 73 years of its existence, and then at the end of the day, some bad guys came and uh, destroyed it. On the other hand, you have that... Uh, also, in a way, extreme thinking that everything was bad in this country and that uh, there was no possibility for it to survive. First of all, one has to say that Yugoslavia lasted 73 years. That means from 1918 till 1991. And it was 73 years of uh, constitutional crisis. Constitutional crisis, uh, dictatorship, uh, totalitarian and then authoritarian regimes. First Yugoslavia, so-called uh, Royal Yugoslavia, uh, which lasted from 1918 to 1941. The constitution, uh, uh, which was um, proclaimed in 1921, lasted for only for eight years. And this was uh, the period of these eight years when tensions due to uh, national problems, but also economic problems were growing step by step. And it finished with proclamation of dictatorship in 1929. And then at the beginning of the 30s, new constitution uh, was proclaimed, saying that this first state, which was uh, named Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, should transform into Kingdom of Yugoslavia, proclaiming that only one nation exists in it, the Yugoslavs. And the names of former nations were only names of some parts of that unified Yugoslav nation. But it was too late. Uh, Yugoslavism couldn't survive with neglecting uh, uh, national names and national identities. The 
Serbs, the Croats and Slovenes, already before unification of Yugoslavia, existed as different nations. And uh, this process of unification of them finished even before 1918. So it was too late. Yugoslav ideologists, and mostly they were coming from Croatia, were seeing Yugoslavia before 1918 as uh, something similar to what happened a couple of decades before in the case of Italy and in the case of Germany. Both countries, sometimes in the 1850s, were completely disintegrated. Uh, About 300 counties were existing in the territory of uh, Germany and in Italy. Also very many different um, states, identities from Piemont on the north to Sicily in the south. So the differences in both countries from the north to the south were extremely big and obvious. But in the 60s of the 19th century, both countries were created, became strong states, Germany, one of the strongest in Europe or in the world in those times. So uh, Yugoslavs before 1918 and after 1918 thought that this similar scenario can be repeated in the case of Yugoslavia. But it wasn't so. And uh, the national tensions particularly between the Croats and the Serbs in the 30s of the 20th century, when this dictatorship was uh, installed, the reaction of the Croats were obvious. They were trying to preserve their national identity. Of course, this uh, repression, this uh, dictatorship, created the atmosphere in which the repression and the violence which was uh, introduced by the regime was uh, in a way repeated by the groups which uh, started to use terror as a weapon of reaction. What we had at the end of the 30s, or in 1941, when Yugoslavia was attacked by Germany, we had installation of fascist or pro-fascist regime in Croatia. They were called Dustashe. And they were creating new Croatian identity or trying to create new identity under the umbrella of uh, German Nazis and Italian fascists. It was impossible. In a way, the answer of the majority of the Croatian people throughout the world was opposition towards the state. People abroad think that uh, this uh, so-called independent state of Croatia was supported by the majority of the Croats. Maybe at the very beginning of the war, yes. But as the weeks and months after this proclamation were passing, people were becoming disappointed for many reasons. First of all, some extremely important or key territories of Croatia along the coast in the north, rich agricultural regions were given either to Italy and these regions in the north to to Hungary. Terror started not only against the Serbs and the Jews, but also against the Croats, anti-fascist Croats. And then the economic collapse came after a couple of months. So uh, that was the basis for the strong opposition and, and the creation of the strong partisan movement during the war. Foundations for the new Yugoslavia were created in November 43 in Jajce. That was the second assembly of the so-called Avnoi Antifascistic Council of the Liberation of Yugoslavia. So it was uh, where the movement, which was led by Marshal Tito, 
proclaimed the foundation of New Yugoslavia, Federative Yugoslavia with six republics. In those times, it was not clear whether there will be certain autonomous provinces in next two years. Uh, they were discussing that, assessing how to do it. But these six uh, republics as uh, founders of New Yugoslavia were proclaimed. That means that not only they were resolving or trying to resolve Croatian national question, but also Slovenian. Macedonia was not new nation. In royal Yugoslavia, it was part of Serbia, and in these territories, Slavic population was uh, perceived as southern Serbs. And in the case of Montenegro, Montenegro, for some Montenegrins, they were only part of the Serbian nation. Nevertheless, some of the Montenegrins thought that they are autonomous nation, as the Serbs are autonomous nations. So Montenegrin question was also on the table. And then the case of Bosnia and Herzegovina, in which uh, three nations were living, Serbs, Croats, and Muslims, was created under a long debate and uh, I wouldn't say confusion, but uh, very different uh, perception of position of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Somebody thought that it, it should be autonomous region. And then there was another question, which was following that uh, strategy, whose autonomous regions should Bosnia and Herzegovina be. So trying to keep balance between Serbia and Croatia and other republics, Bosnia and Herzegovina was constituted as a republic equal to any other republic. This is not the, the end of the, of the problem. The fact is that uh, then the autonomous province of uh, Kosovo and Metohija was created within Serbia, there were long debates about the region of Sanjak, the northern Montenegro, south-west uh, Serbia, whether to have uh, autonomous region uh, within Serbia or some parts of Sanjak were seen as part of Bosnia and Herzegovina. So there were many questions or there was a lot of confusion about the destiny of Sanjak, but then it was divided between Serbia and uh, uh, Montenegro. It's important to say that uh, quite uh, numerous uh, Muslim population is living still in Sanjak, even they constitute majority, but it was divided between Serbia and Montenegro. Yugoslavia as a country, after Tito-Stalin's split in 1948, started a relatively fast uh, process of industrialization, economic development, and what is even more important, democratization in certain aspects and liberalization. It was, of course, very, I would say, a modest or timid democratization, liberalization, but still... Yugoslavia, within um, 5, 10, 20 years, was becoming so much different from any other Eastern European country that from the eyes of Eastern Europeans, Russians and the others, it was seen as a part of the Western world. Uh, Yugoslavs in those times were able to travel, they had passports, they could reach Western Europe without uh, visa, sometimes around 66, uh, 65, 66, and in the second half of the 60s, about 1 million Yugoslavs out of 20, 22 million left the country, started to work mostly in Germany as so-called Gastarbeiter. At that time, generally, 
They were thinking that they will go back home. Many of them went back home. We don't know how many, but many of them went back. But I think many more stayed in Germany and other Western countries. And the ties between those countries in Yugoslavia was extremely strong throughout 60s, 70s, 80s. What is so important to understand in that Yugoslavia? Yugoslavia was doing well in the 50s and in the 60s. That uh, liberalization and democratization was giving uh, results. Yugoslavia was open to the West. Yugoslavia was open to the East. Yugoslavia was transferring, being some kind of shortcut between the East and the West, uh, being open to both divided uh, worlds, uh, divided with the Iron Curtain. So uh, we made a lot of profit. We had companies which were very strong, which were able to work in the East, in the Arab and Muslim countries. For the Western companies, some countries were closed. So Yugoslavia was profiting out of that. In the 50s, in the 60s, and in the 70s, Yugoslavia was uh, passing through the quickest uh, economic development, economic and social development. It was not only that the economy was growing um, 9 or 10% of GDP growth per year. It was a dramatic change, and dramatic development and modernization. And it was social modernization, because before that, after the Second World War, Yugoslavia was mostly rural country. And in that 20 or 30 years, also in the 70s, it became mostly urban country. So uh, that was really a change, which we didn't witness in any other period before that and after that, after the split of Yugoslavia. No. It was, of course, due to the world economy, which was also in those uh, periods very rapidly growing. Only Japan had so quick growth as Yugoslavia in those uh, periods. So Yugoslavia was a well-organized country, well-organized state in those times. But only for that time, in the 70s and particularly in the 80s, Yugoslav leadership, including Tito till his death and then his successors, didn't find adequate answers to the challenges with which they were confronted. Under the surface of this relative calm atmosphere, relative uh, stable situation, there were tensions, national tensions, economic tensions. First of all, due to the incapability of Yugoslav regime at the beginning of the 70s to face all the challenges and to make certain reforms which were needed or which were unconditional for further development. Uh, why I'm saying that? Because these reforms were step by step democratizing the Yugoslav society. Sometimes at the end of the 60s, they reached a point in which the question was posed whether we can challenge the monopole of the power in the, in the hands of the communists. The Communist Party gave certain space of liberty for the artists, in school system relatively, in the economy as well. But Tito, who was in a way also autocrat, he was a reformer, but he still was a communist. He was a Bolshevik, 
I would say, still in his heart. When I was a kid, when he was speaking, giving those long speeches, I thought it's so uh, so futile. Then, after a couple of decades, I understood the meaning, the profound meaning of these words, and how important that was to understand that situation. He was saying, for example, who can be responsible for the development of our Yugoslav society if not the communist? So his answer was, of course, who can be responsible? Only the communists. So to block any kind of reform which would endanger the monopoly of the Communist Party, that was his task. There was another uh, step towards democratization after 1968, but then in the 70s, 71, with the crash of the Croatian Spring, with the squaring accounts with the, the liberals in Serbia and some other uh, republics, Yugoslavia was losing its advantages. We didn't go back towards, uh, let's say, Soviet-Stalinist uh, system as it was in some other European countries, but we were, in a way, uh, becoming close to the concept Ceausescu was uh, developing in Romania. After 71 in, in Croatia, after the Croatian Spring, which was... Uh, similar to what you had in Czechoslovakia with the Dubček in 68, two things, a liberalization of economy, of the political system, and the solution of the national question. We were getting uh, loans from abroad, and uh, Yugoslavia was open, so tourists were coming, and uh, still 70s were very good, and uh, if we speak about the standard of living, the best years in Yugoslavia was 78, 79. And then the crisis started in the 80s. It was obvious that Yugoslav economic system and political as well is not functioning. All these uh, problems, uh, which were not so obvious in the 70s, came out or exploded in the 80s. In those times, people in Yugoslavia were not poor. We had enough to eat, and there was a certain standard of living, modest standard of living, but still, nevertheless, this atmosphere which was created at the end of the 70s and beginning of the 80s. After almost 30 years of progress, obvious economic, uh, economic, political, psychological progress, the atmosphere of pessimism started to dominate, that nothing can be done. When I was a kid and when, when I was young, uh, in first 20 years of my life, we lived in a atmosphere that this year we have a modest life, but it is better than the year before, and next year it'll be better. The story was over at the beginning of the 80s. We entered the crisis, which was prolonged, and the political system, Yugoslav political system, was not capable to resolve these questions. And then the national tension started to grow. First, uh, Tito died in 1980. In 1981, there were big demonstrations and unrest in Kosovo, which um, incited Serbian nationalism. Memorandum in 1986 was, I would say, the creation of the Serbian national movement, and it, then it was uh, underlined or intensified with uh, Milosevic becoming the leader in Serbia in uh, 1987. So this uh, vicious circle started in 1987, and uh, you know the rest. This uh, Serbian nationalism and 
national movement, started uh, a series of demonstrations in Serbia and then in other republics. Then already in 1989, we had uh, public uh, meetings, hundreds, thousand people, even in Croatia, who were coming from Serbia, uh, singing or shouting, this is Serbia, always Serbia. Uh, so this atmosphere of unrest, instability, was already transferred to Croatia and to Bosnia and Herzegovina already in 1989. It was not necessarily linked with the fall of Berlin Wall. We had already started this process of uh, democratization and installation of multi-party system already at the beginning of 1989. That means a couple of months before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So the, the Berlin Wall for, for us in Croatia particularly and in Slovenia wasn't uh, the key incitement for democratization. At the end of the 80s, there were two different options. Slovenia and Croatia were proposing dissolution of Yugoslavia according to the borders which were already created in 1943. And then with the crisis of Yugoslavia and with the creation of process of democratization, the new political parties proposing certain things, it was logical that uh, main political parties in Croatia and in Slovenia will ask for independence. Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina were confronted with the challenge whether they will uh, leave Yugoslavia under the threat that Serbia is going to ask, as Milosevic and his associates would say, we are asking for our part in those countries. We can al always ask ourselves whether it was rational to go into the war. For the Yugoslav people, did they make a profit out of that? For Croatia, well, the answer is uh, very easy. There was no choice. There was no alternative. Milosevic uh, regime or the politics which was promoted by Belgrade in those times was leaving no space for any discussion. We will organize uh, Yugoslavia as a more centralistic, even more unitarian state, or we will uh, create new borders which will not be according to those republic uh, borders during the time of socialist Yugoslavia. Serbia was a relatively small country and economically quite uh, weak. It was constantly under pressure, sanctions and other political, diplomatic, military, economic measures. So uh, they simply collapsed economically, which led to the final chapter of the wars in 1995 with uh, liberating uh, the occupied parts of Croatia and then liberating certain territories in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was concluded in the Dayton Peace Agreement in, at the end of 1995. In his paper, Professor Goldstein answers his titular question, was Yugoslavia good or bad for its people, ambivalently, with a non-answer. I quote, Sober analysis shows that it is not possible to provide a final answer to that question." End quote. Basically, the question is simplistic and the answer super complicated. The country brought unprecedented economic development to its peoples, but it also failed to satisfy or quell their national aspirations. Yugoslavia's achievements and leadership on the world stage were a source of pride, but Yugoslavia was a fragile creation that collapsed in shameful ignominy. 
I do have a sense that while Yugoslavia's positives over its 40-plus year existence do tend to receive the acknowledgement and appreciation they deserve, that the country split up and, uh, more importantly, how it split up often overshadows everything. It's as if one dismissed a lifelong marriage on the basis of its violent end. This creates a yawning hole in life and memory in that notorious Balkan soul, a gap filled with questions of all sorts. The other lesson implicit in that historical overview is this. Whatever the topic of discussion in former Yugoslavia, the answer tends to require delving into history, and often quite far into it. This is why travelogues about former Yugoslavia contain deep, often meandering cuts into local, regional and national lore. Why so many issues entailing established historical facts continue to elicit clashes of interpretations. Why, well, nothing is simple in the Balkans, which is why I love the place. But hey, at least we're still asking the questions. That's all for this bonus episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find the transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to chip in to keep Remembering Yugoslavia on the proverbial air. Go to rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate and contribute now. If you've already given or are a monthly sustainer, thank you, thank you, thank you. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petrich. Additional music by No Sense licensed under Creative Commons. I am Peter Kurchniak. Ciao, and Merry Christmas if you celebrate.